0: to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today we're doing something I haven't really done before on the show, which is interview someone who is in the early stages of creating a film. I'm joined by Julie MacArthur, Professor of History at the University of Toronto, to discuss a feature film she's presently co-writing. The film, currently with a working title of at War, centers on the Mau Mau rebellion that opposed British colonialism in Kenya during the 1950s. Julie is herself an expert on the history of the Mau Mau as well as on African cinema. In our conversation today, we get into the history of the Mau Mau Rebellion itself, why it makes for a fascinating film topic, and how the Mau Mau Rebellion and other aspects of African colonial and anti-colonial history have been depicted in film. We also touch on what the research and writing process is like for a film, as opposed to the more traditional scholarly research outputs like books and articles. In interviewing Julie, I learned a lot about the history of the Mau Mau Rebellion, a topic which I knew very little about coming into the interview. It's also a rare chance to peek behind the curtain of the early stages of a historical film, and so I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto, Julie MacArthur. Julie, thanks so much for joining me on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you and talk to you about your upcoming project. But before we do that, could you uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about what you're interested in in history?
1: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm Julie MacArthur. I'm an associate professor of African history at the University of Toronto. I mostly work in Eastern African history, and I focus on histories of community formation, mapping and borders, gender, mobility, anti-colonial movements, processes of decolonization, alternative claims to sovereignty and belonging, decolonial theory. And I also have a special interest in visual histories, particularly through photography and film.
0: Very cool. And the particular interest in film is going to be very relevant for our conversation today because you're actually working on writing a film.
1: I am, yes. First time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very exciting. Before we get into the project you're working on itself, maybe let's talk a little bit about the history behind the project or the history that it's depicting. The film you're working on is about the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya, which happened during the the 1950s. And I suspect a lot of listeners may not know very much about the Mau Mau Rebellion. I I know very little about the Mau Mau Rebellion myself. So at least this will be helpful for me, even if the listeners are better educated than I am. For starters, could you give us a little bit of... Context about British imperialism in Kenya in the lead up to the Mau Rebellion.
1: Sure. So, one of the most important things to keep in mind in terms of British imperialism in Kenya is that Kenya was a settler colony. So, there are lots of colonies in Uganda, uh, in Tanganyika, in, in the region generally that are what is often called colonies of exploitation, where you don't have large numbers of white settlers. But Kenya was a colony where white settlers were invited by the British government to come and settle. And huge incentives were given to them, including free land, including certain kinds of rights to sell profitable crops, such as coffee. Africans were barred from selling coffee, which was one of the most valuable crops. Hmm. White settlers were given the rights to sell coffee. And so with settler colonialism, You have particular dynamics that arise. You have a lot of land dispossession, people being forced off their land, forcibly removed from their land in order to make room for the white settlers. And often in the most fertile areas of the country, in Kenya, this happens to be in central Kenya... Known in the period as the White Highlands. But of course, they were made into the White Highlands by the dispossession of largely Maasai, but also Kikuyu, Embu, and Meru people who lived in central Kenya prior to colonialism. And this was done through very violent processes, but also the violence continued throughout the period of early colonialism, not only violence by the colonial state, but violence by the colonial settlers who relied very heavily on African laborers. And so there's a relationship between the white settlers and the colonial government to create laws that will provide this huge labour force, but also make sure that they do not have any kind of rights or autonomy within that process. So it creates a huge class of African labourers known as squatters. So these are people who are are given a parcel of land on a white settler farm, and they're allowed to grow their own crops and keep their own cattle and goats on this piece of land in exchange for labouring on the white settler's farm. What happens is a huge conflict emerges through the process of creating of squatter labor because the squatters actually do better than the white settlers do in general. They produce more from the land. They start buying more cattle. And so the settlers try to clamp down on this by putting limitations on what they can sell, controlling the marketing boards, creating limitations on how many cattle they can keep, which is a real source of wealth for most Kenyan communities, And also by exacting violence and very intimate forms of violence on these settler farms. And these are all reinforced by the racial hierarchies that are established in all colonies have racial hierarchies. But in a settler colony, you have an even more stratified and strictly enforced system of racial hierarchies. And so this all prompts new social conflicts and moral debates among multiple African communities, Kenya is a very diverse country, about how to respond to these threats, to their livelihoods, to their ways of life, and how to organize their communities in terms of moral authority, gender discipline, belonging, organizing political movements. And so we see in the first 30, 40 years, a lot of these kinds of social and political conflicts bubbling up throughout Kenya, and not just in central Kenya, where the white settlers are dominant, but throughout Kenya.
0: So, one of these responses then to the British Empire in Kenya is is the Mau Mau rebellion. So, can you talk a little bit about w- why the Mau Mau rebellion happened when it did, sort of initially in the early nineteen fifties, and what were the goals of the Mau Mau?
1: So, this is a difficult question to to answer, and one of the reasons is because the Mau Mau rebellion has been subject to some of the most heated historiographical debates of any topic in African history. It's one of the reasons that drew me to it, I think. Just, just the amount of contention and the amount of debates around what actually constituted the Mau Mau Rebellion, what caused it and what the goals were. One of my uh, mentors at the University of Cambridge where I did my PhD, John Lonsdale famously wrote, there was never a single Mau Mau movement. So. There's not a simple answer, but I can give you some of the multiple answers to that question. So many of the social, economic and political conflicts that have been growing throughout the first three decades of settler colonial rule start to come to a head after World War II with soldiers that are returning from fighting, particularly in Burma and in other parts of the British Empire, with the problem of landlessness becoming particularly acute with the growth in demographics and particularly acute in central Kenya. Many could not, no longer access land. And so they start traveling to the urban centers like Nairobi, but did not find employment there. And so you have a growing class of urban Africans who are now unemployed or underemployed or illegally around the city. And what we see is the beginnings of organization. That's first sporadic and comes in multiple forms and later sort of congeals into what we think of as the Mau Mau. Uh, and this begins with oaths of unity to resist colonialism in squatter land settlements, in these land settlements that were often in terrible conditions, that the squatters who were removed from white settler farms are kind of forced into, they start taking oaths uh, of unity that say they're going to resist colonialism. That starts spreading to the urban areas and leads to a group of young, more radicalized often part of local urban gangs, political fingers who are frustrated with the slow pace of constitutional reform. They actually take over the Kenya African Union, which is the first and the only national African political party. And when they're able to take that over, In the early 1950s, we see a series of high profile arsons on settler farms. We see a series of assassinations, particularly of African chiefs who are seen as loyal to the government. And this shocks the white settler population and rumors begin to spread of an underground movement. And the British start calling this movement Mau Mau. There is no agreement on where the term Mao Mao comes from. You'll find multiple theories online, hmm. but there is absolutely no agreement as to where this term came from. But what is important is that it is a term that is imposed by the British. Once the movement actually consolidates, they actually call themselves the Kenya Land Freedom Army. And some may ask, well, why you know, are we referring it to the, as the Mau Mau Rebellion? Why not refer to it in the terms that they decided for themselves, the, land, uh, the Kenya Land Freedom Army? And one of the reasons, I use both terms, one of the reasons to continue using the the Mao Mau label is it became so popularized that even the Veterans Association for the movement call themselves the Mau Mau Veterans Association. They've sort of taken up that ascription and given it new meaning. They've injected new meaning. So the British use the term as a term to invoke fear and to invoke paranoia and to invoke this kind of savage violence and this this community that was living outside the norms of civilized society. But the Mau Mau Veterans Association have taken up the term because it was so popularized and because it reflects the multiple people who were involved in the movement that might not have been f- part of the formal quote-unquote, Kenya Land Freedom Army, which the army is something that emerges at a later period once the British counterinsurgency cracks down on these various forces and those who are deemed Mau Mau move into the forests of central Kenya to set up this army structure.
0: Okay, interesting. So what ends up happening in the rebellion...
1: Yeah, so the beginning of the story, and for some, although it begins much earlier, as I just described, is in 1952, when the British government declare a state of emergency. This gives them great legal justification, as states of emergency often do, to imprison without cause, to launch military uh, operations, massive counterinsurgency techniques, including large-scale detention camps, concentration camps. And we have to remember this is all post-World War II, so it's a very important context. And so the declaration of the emergency in 1952 also leads the British government to target the main group that are part of Mau Mau, and that is the Kikuyu community in central Kenya. There are other groups in Kenya, especially the related Embu and Meru, who form big parts of the Mau Mau rebellion. Other communities in Kenya are part of the movement in various ways, but it is largely a Kikuyu movement. And the British target the Kikuyu remove them uh, wholesale from Nairobi, start targeting them for screenings. And this leads to many joining the rebellion, but also leads those who have been kind of in the leadership of trying to transform these sporadic moments of anti-colonialism into a movement to go off into the forest and to set up an army and also what some like David Anderson have argued was a whole counter state And they launched their rebellion from the spaces of the forest, supported largely by what is called the passive wing, Those who remained in the village but provided the food, the supplies, the intelligence at great personal risk, which is why I hate the term passive. There's nothing passive about what what these people were doing, but they were not part of the fighting force. They were part of the wing that remained in the villages but provided all of the supplies and the information needed for those who went to the forest to actually conduct the rebellion, which included attacks on settler farms, attacks on British military uh, installations and also attacks on those they deemed loyal to the state. So one uncomfortable truth from the Mau Mau rebellion is that 32 white settlers are killed. And this, when you look at the British propaganda that comes out, this is almost a shockingly low number because the British propaganda advertised and promoted and and sort of put on the front cover of newspapers the death of each of these white settlers as sort of a larger phenomenon. But 32 white settlers are killed. But the Mau Mau actually end up killing almost 3,000 Kikuyu, people of their own community who they deemed loyal to the colonial state. They were called loyalists. So, people working as chiefs, people working in the police, people working as headmen, people who were within the workings of the colonial state that the Mau Mau targeted within a kind of anti colonial vein. But also, many saw this as kind of an internal struggle within the Kikuyu to sort of renegotiate who has authority. This military confrontation that leads to many huge battles, that leads to dramatic counterinsurgency techniques, as I mentioned, large-scale pipeline of detention camps where there's large-scale abuse, torture, and many, many deaths, as well as trenches dug around the forest to try to cut the Mao Mau off from their supply routes. This continues until really 1956-57. The capture of one of the leaders, Dedan Kamathi, in 1956 is considered one of the greatest victories uh, and that the Mao Mau war is basically over, at least the forest war is basically over. The emergency lasts until 1960. And so you might ask if the military threat of the Mao Mau is over by 1956-57, why does the emergency continue until 1960? And that is to allow the British government to continue with its detention camps, with its policies of, quote-unquote, re-education, quote-unquote, rehabilitation, and to extend its powers, its legal powers of using violence against the Kikuyu community in order to, in their minds, stamp out what they called, quote-unquote, the disease of Mau Mau.
0: So the... Emergency ends in nineteen sixty and Kenyan independence comes just a few years after that. I guess what is the what would you say is the lasting impact of the Mao Mau rebellion?
1: So this is one of those points of debate that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so militarily, it's easy to say that the Mau Mau were defeated. Militarily, they were defeated. And Kenya's independence was gained through a negotiated Constitutional reform means similar to to other countries like Ghana or other countries that 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 didn't necessarily win independence through revolution, but won it through constitutional negotiations. And that happens between 1960 and 1963 when independence is gained. So as a military operation, it, it certainly fails as a political ideology, ideological and social movement that's a more mixed response. Because there was so much violence within the movement, as well as targeting the colonial state, it ends up being kind of an open wound at independence. And first president Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, who actually was charged and imprisoned in 1952 for being the leader of the Mau Mau, although he had denounced the Mau Mau throughout the early 1950s and never oh, wow. was never was formally a member of Mau Mau let alone its leader
2: hmm.
1: he at independence tells people to forgive and forget we all fought for uhuru let's uh uhuru meaning uh, freedom in Swahili let's forgive and forget and in the process he ends up continuing the ban on the Mao Mau as a movement that the British had installed. He does not remove the ban, so Mao Mau is still an illegal organization. He ends up launching military... Operations against remaining Mau Mau. There are still Mau Mau in the forest who are sort of still causing problems for the new independent state. And he goes after them quite ferociously. So he has a very complicated, ambiguous relationship to Mau Mau. There are still websites online, or there's a classic speech given by Malcolm X in 1964 where he calls Kenyatta the leader of Mau Mau. And Kenyatta never corrects anyone who has this misconception, because usually it's giving him sort of uh, revolutionary credentials in a way. But very clearly with his speeches in the early 1950s and his actions in the 1960s against remaining Mao Mau and refusing to consider the land claims of former Mao Mau veterans, it creates this space where the, the legacy is highly, highly contested. Mm. The movement itself is not unbanned until 2003, Mm. so 40 years after independence. Even still to this day, it it causes quite heated debates and tensions in the public discourse in Kenya.
0: Okay, interesting. I was going to ask about today, so that continues today.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why I think there hasn't been a fiction film made since the 1950s, since the British films were made. There hasn't been really a major motion picture focusing on, on Mau Mau. I think it's one of the reasons is because it still ends up being such a contested legacy and an open wound that has still not really been reconciled in terms of neither historically, in terms of historians' discourses, nor for the Kenyan public at large.
0: Okay, well, maybe that's a nice way to lead into talking about the the film project itself now. Could you describe, not like a plot synopsis, but if you could sort of describe what you're intending to focus on in the script?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things I became fascinated by when teaching a course, actually, I taught my first course on the Mau Mau Rebellion, I'd kind of avoided it for a long time. And I didn't start as a Mau Mau historian. (laughs) I was very, you know, happy to stay out of some of those debates, ended up actually discovering a trove of archives that had been missing for 60 years related to the leader i mentioned Dedan Kimathi and so ended up being brought into these debates more directly and so i decided to teach this this course on the mau mau rebellion and one of the weeks that my students got most excited about was the week where we talked about life in the forest what were the mau mau doing in the forest on a day to day basis what were gender relations what were you know how did they cook their food how did they organize what did, what kind of society did they think they were constructing why did they Burn their identity cards, which was a common statement of sort of resistance against a colonial state. You see it in apartheid South Africa, you see it in many different places. Mm-hmm. But they don't just burn their identity cards, they create their own, mm. with Kenya Land Freedom Army written at the top and with their own leadership kind of reflected on these on these identity cards. The the whys of of how life in the in the forest actually looked and how people lived within the forest, I realized. I didn't have great answers and that there weren't really great answers. So I became fascinated by a project on the social life of the forest, of rebels in the forest, right? And so I started thinking about that as a project and it evolved into not only a kind of academic project and a research project, but I also realized that some of the the gaps and some of the dimensions of this history would actually be best told visually. Mm. And I have been told... I've worked in the film industry for a long time. I was in the programming team at the Toronto International Film Festival. I have been the director of an African Film Festival for a long time so I've worked in the African film world for a long time and I've been asked to collaborate on previous Kenyan productions around the Mau Mau rebellion none of which really came to fruition and I always sort of resisted it. I always thought of myself more as a curator uh, and more of a, as an academic rather than as a creative as a filmmaker or, or, or a scriptwriter. And so it really came about that during the pandemic, really, um, when I was sort of thinking about these different dimensions of this project, that I started to see it visually. Hmm. And so that all that to say, to get to your question, that the... The film is going to be a little bit different than what people might expect from a historical drama. Some of the history I just told you will never appear directly in the film. What we are envisioning for the film is that it all takes place within the space of the forest between about late 1952 up to 1956. And it's sort of set out in three acts, the first act really establishing what life was like in the forest, the kinds of joy and struggles and different ways they tried to organize this alternative society that they were setting up, how were they imagining a decolonial society? in the space of the forest. And the forest has incredibly sacred meanings within Kikuyu culture. And so so that also will come into how we want to represent the kinds of social life that they establish in the forest. The second act will take us more into the struggles that they faced as they face this enemy. In the film, the enemy will remain unseen. You will not see the British at all in the film. That was sort of a decision made very early on (laughs) Mm. that we would see the effects We would see the bomber planes overhead. We would see the dropping of the pamphlets calling for surrender or for amnesty that they dropped hundreds of thousands of onto the forest. We would see certain rebels coming back from confrontations that they'd had with British forces or with British settlers. But the idea was to keep the story within the space of the forest. How did all of those things impact the life that they had tried to establish the kind of society they tried to establish in act one in the forest. And then the third act really takes us to the fractures that start to that start to emerge as the British start to gain the upper hand, as there are surrenders or arrests, depleting the forces, as the trenches dug around the forests are really stopping for supplies from being able to come in. People are starting to have major issues with not only supplies of weapons, but supplies of basic food needs, how that leads to a different kind of feeling and and different set of of struggles. And it actually ends with the capture of Dedan Kamathi in 1956. And his capture to me symbolizes this kind of trajectory where one of the most shocking things that I learned when I finally was able to locate after eight years of looking for it, the trial of Dedan Kamathi, the most famous trial. And we have a lot of records of the trials that Mau Mau were put through by the British. And yet the most famous has been missing for 60 years. When I actually located it, one of the most fascinating things to read was that he was incredibly alone when he was captured. There was actually no one else in the vicinity when he was captured. And so you go from a man who's leading tens of thousands of men in this in this forest fight, and that's only in, in the forest that he was fighting in, which is called Nyandarura or Aberdeers in English. There were also forest fighters on the, the forest of Mount Kenya. He goes from this man leading these huge troops, giving these massive speeches to audiences in the thousands, to completely alone, and one British official, Ian Henderson, who was in charge of the search for Dada and Kamathi, and he wrote a book called *The Hunt for Dada and Kamathi*. He wrote, "Even God had abandoned him at this point." Wow! And so this sort of this sort of trajectory really is going to frame the way we tell the story. And he happens to be captured, shot, and captured—not killed, but shot and captured on the very edge of the forest. So so it sort of bookends the, the kind of experience of the forest that we're trying to capture.
0: Very cool. I mean, that sounds like a really, really cool idea for a movie. I wanted to ask or follow up on, you mentioned that you were thinking about the sort of themes related to the movie before the project and started to think about them in a visual way. Can you talk a little bit? I realize that this is an audio format. So unfortunately, you know, you can't sort of like show the listeners or something like that. But what are some of the things that you were thinking about visually, I guess?
1: Absolutely. So first, I've been to the Neanderthal Forest many times. So I have an image of what the forest looks like. And it is a Stunning wildlife reserve that's what it is now it's a wildlife reserve where people can go on safari and see elephants and see other wildlife and so trying to match that with what i'd learned about the mama rebellion it, it doesn't seem to match because they don't talk about it as a you know as a functioning wildlife reserve sure but it is a gorgeous dense and sometimes intimidating forest the the colors the the tones the the way the light comes through in certain areas really create a very kind of emotive reaction for me so that's where it started this image of the forest and then how the opening scene really started coming to me was imagining sort of zooming in very slowly into the space of the forest, and in a clearing in the forest, seeing a very large, wooden, stately, Victorian-style desk. And behind that desk, a dreadlocked man sitting, furiously writing. And that, to me, is how I've envisioned Kimathi. He, he was known for his writings, his letter writing, his petition writing. He was known for giving very uh, rousing speeches. He was known for being obsessed with keeping records of everything that happened, not only to sort of keep track of what was happening in the rebellion, but also to memorialize it. He hmm. had a sense of kind of constructing the history while the history was happening. So I always imagined him behind this kind of desk. And so in a way, visualizing the state within a space that we don't think of statehood in right we think of states Mm -hmm. as as kind of creating cities and creating order and creating these kind of rational planned out spaces controlling space is part of controlling the state and so creating a kind of image of a state in this space that seems so wild and so mysterious and so natural. To me, that contrast has always guided the way I think about the Mau Rebellion more broadly, these kind of contradictory images. So for me, the, the way the visuals were coming were in terms of, I, I started to realize and read the archives and also through my oral interviews to try and see what was being described in these archives. So when someone would describe how they would organize the camp,
2: Mm. can I
1: actually see that? When someone would describe how they had to hide from bomber planes in, in these caves, Well, those caves still exist, so I can go and visit those caves and see what kind of hardship, but also what kind of ingenuity was shown by these rebels in being able to survive bombardment from one of the largest militaries in the world at the time. And so starting to see the history gave me space to imagine things that were not directly in the archives, but were inspired by the archives and by the oral interviews that I was doing.
0: That's really interesting. I, instead of thinking about that I was, I'm just wondering to myself like how much of the history that I study can I actually kind of visualize right? Mm-hmm. We study all of this stuff in such incredible detail and yet I feel like I don't I don't have a good picture in my mind of some of the some of the research that I do. and yet I also think that that's what really interests a lot of people in the public about history is sort of like how, the past looks right this is i mean mm. i think this is part of why historical films are, are popular right is people or people like to look at old photos and things like that right looking at, at how the past looks in some ways similar in some ways different to today
1: Absolutely. And and one of my, if I can have a little uh, digression, mm-hmm. one of my earlier pieces that I'd written on, it actually inspired the work that I now do with the and Kamathi project that I did, but also with the new project, was there was a movement, an anti-colonial movement that predated Mao Mao called Dini Amasambwa. And its leader, Lija Masinde, is quite a character. He's a prophet, so nothing's written down. And similar to and Kamathi, his trial had been lost, and no one had ever used it. And I was able... to to find it. It had just been mislabeled in the archives. But it is our only record of his actual words because he was a prophet. He was, Unlike Kimathi, he never wrote anything down. And in the trial, he decides to defend himself. So there's a lot of him in these 500 pages of this of this trial. And I was writing an article about it. And when I read certain passages of it, I can see him smirking hmm. as he answers a question. He had a real sense of humor. So did Data and Kamathi. He had a real sense of the ironies of British colonial justice. So he would do things like play on the fact that all the evidence of, that the British were presenting was hearsay. And I could see him almost smirking. And I decided to put that into an article and see, see, see what kind of response I would get. And I got a very positive response. I didn't frame it as he was smirking. But I, would, I said something like, you can almost see him smirking as. Mm. And so it's, again, that more speculative historical kind of analysis that we often don't leave ourselves room for in, in sort of conventional academic writing. Yeah. But more and more so as people move towards more creative historical writing, also, I think, influenced by Sadia Hartman, especially many others, but Sadia Hartman's work on critical fabulation where... The archives themselves are constructed fictions, and so we should engage with them on that plane and therefore allow ourselves to read between the lines of the archives and have some sort of speculative imagination involved. I, too, like you, was resistant at first to that kind of thinking. And once I opened myself up to that kind of thinking, and obviously being honest and upfront when it's a speculative kind of approach rather than claiming it as fact. I can't claim that Elijah Masinde smirked. Sure. I was not there. There are yeah. no records. And even if there was a photo, a smirk in one culture does not necessarily, you know, mean a smirk in another culture. Yeah. But it opened up this possibility of reading history in a much more subjective and personalized way that I found for me was getting closer to the social truth of the moment.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit in terms of the questions and ask you about... Kamathi himself, which we've Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, the last couple of questions, you've sort of talked a little bit about him. But I want to get a little more into him as sort of the one of the main figures in your story. What makes him an interesting figure to make a film about? How would you describe him as a sort of historical character?
1: So what's interesting is that I'm not imagining this as a biography or a hagiography in any way. Kamathi is a fascinating captivating historical figure and he remains the symbolic image that stands in for the dreams of revolution and the disappointments of the post-colonial reality in Kenya and and across different places in Africa his image is everywhere particularly this one famous image from his trial where his dreadlocks have been pulled into two long horns this image appears on t-shirts on Matatu buses in Kenya on murals with others like Che Guevara and Patrice Lumumba, he's put in that pantheon of, of martyrs of the, re- of the revolution. Hmm. So he certainly is one of those captivating figures. I might mention the two other figures I mentioned both have films about them. <laughs> right, so, it right. is, so so. to me, there's, there's something there. And he's one of the leaders of Mao Mao, but, though he's not the only one. But he does become the voice of Mao Mao in many ways. Because as I mentioned before, he believes so much in the power of the written word. So he's writing these letters, he's giving speeches, he's keeping careful records. And he also self-fashioned himself as a revolutionary. So in 1953, when the Colonial Criminal Investigation Department complains and complains publicly in the press that they've heard of this Dedan Kamathi, but they have no image of him, he sends in two pictures of himself to the press to be published. (laughs) And he poses them and he poses them. Yeah. So they tell us a lot about how he's thinking. And he tried to get a, a, an actual um, film camera into the forest. It seems that that never actually happened. But he, okay. I have records of where he's requesting and trying to get a film camera. So he obviously also saw the value of capturing this history visually. Yeah. In these two images that he sends in. One is an image where he's standing in front of the forest, he has a few of his rebel comrades behind him, and he's holding a rifle. At this point in the emergency, the emergency laws that the British had enacted, being associated with a Mau Mau, having a bullet in your possession, but especially having a gun in your possession, was an automatic death sentence. That was penalized by hanging under the emergency regulations. So sending in the first picture that they're going to see of you holding a rifle is quite a bold statement. But he sends two photos and the other photo is quite interesting. It's him standing with Karari Njama, who's sort of known as his scribe, his personal secretary. And he's standing there holding a book open with a pen. Hmm. And I always think those two images create that contrast and that picture of the way that I think of him, that he is the revolutionary in that militant sense, but he also saw himself as a revolutionary through the power of words.
0: Right. Okay. And the film you mentioned to me before we started recording that the film, it'll focus on this theme of liberation, but it also has this romantic plot line about Kamathi and his relationship to his mistress How do you see those two themes relating to each other? Do you see them as related or do you see them as as sort of interesting but somewhat disconnected?
1: I see them as thoroughly related. And one of the aspects that I wanted to bring out in the film equally to the story of Kamathi, and for me, Kamathi does sort of stand in for the larger debates over Mao Mao, the larger contradictions and tensions over Mao Mao. So it's not yeah. so much about him as as how he represents all of these different aspects: the modern and the traditional, the anti-colonial, but also the reformulating internal dynamics of society. So I wanted to make sure equally as important to that is the story of how gender is reformulated in the forest and the powerful role that women play in the forest. And so he is sort of matched in the film by two women. One who's a woman named uh, Wanjiru, who became known as his quote-unquote forest wife, and she became his very close confidant and was the leader of, of the women in his troops. And the women took on the same roles the men did. They acted as spies. They acted as fighters. They were field fighters. They were going out into the field just as much as the men were. And so there's a real kind of reformulation of gender roles going on in the forest. And so I do see the story of liberation as deeply connected to this story of what I'm framing as a kind of impossible love story, that the love story between Wanjiru and and Kimathi could only happen in the alternate space of the forest that they had created, this kind of decolonial society that they had created. And so I see those as deeply intertwined. And indeed, she tries to save, and this is from the historical record, she tries to save him at the end. She sort of throws herself out of the forest and into the British forces in order to give him time to escape. So their, their love story really does reflect the commitment to the ideas of the liberation as much as it does a commitment to each other. But the love story that they share can only exist in the forest and only ever does exist in the mm. forest as Kamathi is hung soon after he's captured in night he's captured in 1956 and he's hung in February of 1957 after after a long trial and so i do see them as intertwined and telling us something about the the alternate world that the forest allowed these rebels to imagine and to live and that that love story can help us to understand the Ways in which even in a time of conflict, even in a time of war, joy, love, family, all of these kinds of aspects continue and they change and they adapt, but they are not interrupted. They are rather, you know, reconfigured and reformulated. And so being able to embed that within the story of the liberation allows us to experience a story of revolution through the actual emotions and desires and ambitions of the characters.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think that works pretty well together. You also mentioned to me that the movie is not intended to be an action movie, right? You said earlier that we'll never see the British, right? There's never going to be sort of like a pitched battle scene in the movie or something like that. And I was thinking about that and thinking that most movies that I can think of, at least like big Hollywood movies that are about wars of liberation or revolutions, tend to be action movies or at least in part action movies. So, why did you decide specifically to avoid doing that?
1: Right. And those are a lot of the films I love. Battle of Algiers, which is a classic anti colonial film, is very much so a war film, right? It's very much so about these huge confrontations and this huge battle over the town of Algiers. And those are very influential films and very important films. For me, it was important to refocus our gaze on the actual lives and experiences. Mm-hmm. For me, There's another film that could be made that could be a war drama epic. But the story that I wanted to tell was much more of sort of, you know, the unconventional love story in the cauldron of this historical drama about a war of liberation. And so some of, you know, I'm also building on some of the, the films that I love. There's a film named Sambizanga by a director named Sarah Mulder in 1972. It's an Angolan film. It's set right at the beginning of the Angolan War of Liberation, but it focuses on one woman's attempt to find her husband. He's been part of a major attack in Luanda, which is one of the attacks that starts the War of Liberation in Angola, but he just disappears. And she is going through the countryside, going through the whole country, trying to find him. So the War of Liberation is told through the subjective experience of one woman's struggle to maintain her family. Mm. And I found that incredibly powerful. The film is also very powerful because the landscape is shot so beautifully that some critics at the time worried that people would not understand the, the severity and the brutality of the underlying political context, the kind of emotional weight of the film because of how beautifully the film was shot. Oh, wow. And, and that really inspired me as well, in terms of thinking about the aesthetic of the film. The films of Trinh T. Minh Ha in Vietnam, so Reassemblage and Forgetting Vietnam, for example, they really challenge the boundary between documentary and fiction, and they act as almost anti-ethnographies they sort of reflexively uh, or self-reflexively dismantle the objectification and exotification of otherness that we see in other kinds of films that are about the Vietnam War and she is able to embed a kind of feminist and post-colonial critique through a kind of aesthetic of lyricism and kind of ambivalent representations of the impacts of colonialism war without actually having to show them directly so that that really influenced me as well And I would like to give a nod to a recent film, another East African film called Tug of War, or in in Swahili, Vuta Nkuvute. So it's from Tanzania, from a director named Emil Shivji, just came out two years ago. And it's about the anti-colonial struggle in Zanzibar, but it's told through the lived realities of a very diverse community and the complex social relationships and racial hierarchies on the island. And so similarly has this historical drama, but also these romantic stories about how People from different communities came together through love, but also through commitments to changing their societies. Hmm. And I'm also really influenced by African futurism. And this is best articulated by the Nigerian author Nnedi Okorafor. She defines it as speculative fiction with the aesthetic practice of producing worlds created by Africans that center Africans as the historical agents who produce their own imagined futures. And it is related to what some of your listeners might have heard of before, Afrofuturism. It's different than Afrofuturism, though. Afrofuturism really focuses on themes of reclamation, Black liberation, the revisioning of past and predictions of the future. But it really differs from African futurism in its history, in its Identification is specifically within the sci-fi genre, and its main location being in the diaspora rather than based on the continent. And so here the work of Kenyan filmmakers like Wenuri Kahio and Mbiti Masia. British black filmmaker, Jonah Comfra and Burkinabe filmmaker, Cedric Ito send out as inspirations for me who are working in this genre of African futurism, the idea of imagining different kinds of futures and, and being very aesthetically daring in their imagining of African futures through this kind of speculative fictional worlds that they're creating.
0: Right. Okay. Thinking about other films that are related, there are some movies that are about the Mau Mau rebellion that were filmed by the British during the Mau Mau Rebellion. So, could you tell us a little bit about what kind of depiction those films created of the Mau Mau? Maybe what's what sort of impression they left about the Mau Mau Rebellion on their audiences, and you know what you're hoping to do differently than those those early films? Because I I haven't watched them, but you know I have a suspicion that their history is quite poor.
1: I'm hoping to do many things differently. In fact, fact, they are not a point of reference in terms of the the kind of narrative we want to tell, but they are incredible documents. And it is incredibly rare. So it's both American and British films that are produced. And it is incredibly rare to have feature-length fiction films produced not only during the conflict, while the conflict is at its height, but also on location, during the conflict. So you have, you know, World War II films that are that are shot during World War II that are part of propaganda campaigns, but they're not never shot on location in, in the sites where these battles are ongoing. And so this is quite remarkable. This is really remarkable that we have three major feature-length fiction films shot during the 1950s, and they were billed as, quote-unquote, jungle adventures. This is a popular genre of film in the 1950s this is so, that showed so-called exotic locations in in Africa and in Asia. And so very much part of the, the kind, of, kind of colonial film production that was going on throughout the early 20th century, but climaxing in the 50s. But they were also war movies. But as one of my colleagues, Dave Anderson has argued, both genres are kind of muted by the political ambiguities of the period of decolonization because they don't know the outcome of the Mau Mau rebellion. That's an important hmm. point. They're, they're shooting these films right in the cauldron of this conflict. And it's very important to say that these films were not intended and not shown to Kenyan audiences. It was Mm. clearly for North American and European markets. And therefore not only informed by, but also thoroughly part of the British propaganda war. Right. So the three films were Simba, which was shot at the height of the conflict in 1954, Safari, which is shot in uh, 1955, 1956. And perhaps the most well known was actually the American production, Something of Value, which is released in 1957. And it's more of an American reading or take. So there is a lot of mm. anti-British imperialism in the American film, even though some of the representations of Mau Mau remained the same. But this film had Rock Hudson, Dana Winter, Sidney Poitier. I mean, this is a huge, major, major motion picture. And so while the three films were very different, particularly in how sympathetically they represented African grievances and the Mau Mau under British colonial rule, from very kind of liberal sentiments in Simba to more direct critiques of colonialism and racism in Something of Value all three shared some characteristics about how they represented the Mau Mau. So first, they represented the Mau Mau as primitive, as atavistics, as savages, as ungrateful criminals who were terrorizing not only white settlers, but also the good loyal, quote unquote, docile Africans, the good Africans, that the Mau Mau were undermining this project of civilization for everyone and for, and for the good of the country at whole. And so they're often re- represented, whether through the Mau Mau or whether through the broader Kenyan public, Africans are represented as children in these films, sometimes literally, but very paternalistically throughout. Yeah. The depiction of violence is also unidirectional. It's presented as, the Mau Mau violence is presented as primitive, as terrifying. The symbol of the machete certainly is popularized through these films. The machete as a symbol of black male violence that's more intimate, more brutal, more primitive. And in contrast, the response of the British, which we know to have killed at least 80 to 100,000 people, far outstripping any, any number we could attach to the Mau Mau, Is shown as ordered rational and restrained restorative of of order of social uh, you know social order rather than this kind of destructive violence of the mau mau and very prominently the anti-colonial ideologies or motivations of the mau mau are never really explained or given any kind of credence and throughout all three films regardless of their political orientation What is presented as most terrifying is the threat to the domestic life of the white settler. Mm -hmm. And I think this is because it resonates across many Western countries as well. The idea of the, the loyal servant turning on his master and violently overtaking them. That was sort of an image that was constantly uh, replayed. The idea that the Mau Mau represented a threat to this domestic bliss that these white settlers were living in. And it made it much more intimate and much more personal in terms of the violence that was depicted. But they are remarkable documents. I mean, Simba created a massive controversy because it uses actual detainees, Mau Mau detainees, people who are in these detention camps where... Brutal practices are being used in scenes where they're reenacting Mao Mao oathing practices, for example, they shoot them only to show their faces so that the audience cannot see that these men are actually in handcuffs and three of the extras were actually hung for Mau Mau offenses only three days after the production of the film. Wow. The other films use the actual locations around the forest in the villages that are suffering under forced villagization at the time. The British create basically anyone who's not in a detention camp is put into these barbed wired villages which act similarly to a detention camp. And also we see the detention camps themselves. And this is so rare to see. And yet it's being recast in these fictional films. So these three films are quite remarkable. They're quite unique for their time period. They had quite a big impact. I know even talking to my mom, who who was alive at the time, she remembers these films and remembers these images. And when I started working on Mau Mau, that was her first reaction because that was the only knowledge she had Hmm. about the Mau Mau Rebellion, came from these films. So they still have a dominant effect on how Mau Mau is imagined, at least in terms of that cinematic history. And so, and so, yes, it's not that we want to do things differently, it's that we want to completely turn away from, from what those films were, were, were producing yeah. and instead completely not even reverse the gaze. You know, there's, there's big debates over decolonizing the gaze and reversing the gaze. This is about looking, as South African filmmaker once said, Teddy Matera, he once said, it's not about reversing the gaze or decolonizing the gaze. It's about looking elsewhere. Hmm. And that's why. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted it all in the forest. Because in all of these films, there are no scenes actually in the forest. Because no one knew what was happening in the forest. And they didn't even dare to go into the forest because they didn't know if they could shoot <laughs> with safety in the forest. So that the idea of looking elsewhere, the forest became that space where I could look elsewhere for a different kind of history.
0: Right. So th- those films from the 50s you mentioned that they're sort of part of this genre of like jungle adventure movies. There are also other films sort of from roughly the same era that are depictions of conflict between European colonizers and Africans. Right. I'm thinking of like the movie Zulu, for example, Mm -hmm. as another one, I think it's no, it probably should be no surprise to listeners that, you know, mainstream British and American films at this time were very racist. Right. Mm -hmm. But beyond that point, it's a pretty important point, but like, are these films doing something like differently than these other films? Or would you say they're more sort of like in keeping with that style of film
1: that, yeah, that's an interesting question. So often the other films, they were often historical epics. Like Zulu is, is a historical epic. It's looking back to the 19th century and the rise of Shaka, the, the king of the Zulu in the, in the 1830s, sorry, 1818, 18 to 1828. And it's also looking at the great battles that the British fought in, for example, in Islangwana in 1879 between the British and the Zulu, which is the, the first major defeat of the British army on African soil. They still managed to colonize the area, but it is a massive defeat and, and, and popularized as such. The films are in large part concerned with the colonizer's perspective and the fate of the colonizers. The main Mm. characters tend to be those that even where there is a main character who is black or who is African, a lot of times they were played by British actors or by American actors, tend to play as secondary or as foils. Uh, King Solomon's mind is another classic example of this kind of film. And they tend to, in some ways, do a kind of contradictory work in that they often are seen as anti-colonial films And yet at the same time, they support the argument for the need to control the inherent primitivism and savagery of of Africans, that that needs to be honed in by civilization, by colonial education, by Western standards of clothing and of comportment and uh, ideas of respect and all of that. In the, the case of the films set in Kenya, I think what makes them so remarkable is they are a little bit ambivalent. Because they're making films about an event that has not finished. Mm. So all three of them make kind of different levels of claims about the Mau Mau Rebellion. But regardless of which claims, again, they're still consistent in what their concern is for is how they're imagining a future for white settlers. So in the case of Simba, it's, it's all about the fact that Mau Mau has to be eradicated and British colonialism, it kind of proves that British colonialism needs to continue to protect not only white settlers, but also innocent Africans. In the case of something of value, which has much more of a critique of, of British colonialism, it envisions a future that has to be multiracial. So in some ways, it's arguing against Mao Mau, and Mao Mao's claims that Kenya needs to be reclaimed for Africans and argues that and, and this is symbolized in the main character, Rock Hudson's character, adopting a black child, an orphaned black child at the end of the film. This is sort of the symbol for what Kenya's future needs to be. And so, again, kind of making these moves you know, as as Eve Tuck and um, Y. Wayne Yang would argue, they wrote a great piece called Decolonization is Not a Met- Metaphor. These films, to me, fit into their ideology of settler, white settler moves to innocence. Right. Mm. So never having to deal with the actual issue around land dispossession, around the violence of colonialism, instead sidestepping that towards something that makes the, the settler colonial institutions and future comfortable and able to continue Hmm. even if it does see a reconfiguration of it it's still keeping the the comfort and the innocence of the white settler intact
0: this is really interesting because i i know very little about movies set in africa Mm -hmm. but well i teach a whole course on it you're
1: welcome welcome anytime
0: (laughs) thank thank you i was gonna say but i you know i study the history of north america and of the united states and i have Seen plenty of westerns, and a lot of the themes that we're describing about essentially like colonialism in film, a lot of them seem very paralleled. The sort of the western, right, and sort of the way that indigenous people in North America are depicted. Versus sort of this this batch of films. So I, I don't know, that just stood out to me as a, sort of an interesting parallel.
1: No, absolutely. These films are influenced by the genre tropes of the Western films like King Solomon's Minds. It's all about, you know, frontiersmen and going out into these yeah. dangerous areas and, you know, finding your El Dorado, right? The, the Kenyan films are, in this case, there, there are Kenyan films that very much fit in that category as well. Even films made after the colonial period, including the famous Out of Africa, which is based on Isaac Dennison's book, A Very Famous White Settler. You know, when you hear Meryl Streep's voice at the beginning going, I had a farm in Africa. And this is all this is all pre-Mao Mau, right? But it kind of gives you, a, Out of Africa is a perfect example of the kind of colonial nostalgia. But the idea of the Western, the idea of of the colonizing new frontiers, the danger involved in that, the primitiveness of the other certainly runs throughout a lot of the colonial films set in Africa. One of the main differences I'd say is that in Africa you're dealing with a majority population. The settlers in no country ever outnumber the Africans, and they are highly reliant on the Africans for the functioning of the economy, for the functioning of the society. They are the laborers that are going to produce the wealth of the country. And so because of that, it creates a slightly different dynamic, because it is not about eradication and about the clearing. It's about clearing the land, but somehow cordoning the, the, the indigenous population into physical and legal kind of constraints that will force them to labor for the, the, the settler colonial state. Mm-hmm. So it, it has a slightly different dynamic, but certainly those tropes of the Western come through in the, in the jungle adventures as well.
0: Right, right. I want to switch gears in terms of the questioning and talk a little bit about sort of what it's like to work on this project as a historian and I wanna start with thinking about the theme of collaboration, because a lot of the time as historians, we work somewhat independently. I realize that historians dealing with subjects related to decolonization often engage in more sort of community engaged research practice. You know, you do oral interviews and things like that, right? So your work isn't as isolated as, as some historians, but I imagine that working on a film is is still different, at least somewhat than that work. So Can you talk a little bit about the nature of collaborating on a film project and what that's like?
1: For me, it was incredibly important for this film project that I have Kenyan collaborators, and so I am co-writing the film with with a with a Kenyan filmmaker, and either that Kenyan filmmaker or someone else, we're still discussing that, will will be the one to direct it. I don't see myself acting in a directorial capacity; I don't have that skill set, but I'm not seeking it, but contributing, co-writing the script, and that was incredibly important not only to my ethic as a researcher, but also to making sure that the different dynamics were coming through and the different... I ask very different questions because I'm trained as a historian than a filmmaker might ask, even if they've made films about historical subjects. There are, there are different kinds of questions that you're asking, so that collaboration is is incredibly important. And as you say, all my work I think of as collaborative. The, the work that I do I- in Eastern Africa is impossible to do without collaboration. Even the archival work, which again we think of the, you know the classic image of a historian you know working away on these documents even that archival work in the places where I work requires collaboration Hmm. because the archives are not necessarily accessible in the ways you might want them to be in, in terms of being able to access or even having the proper hand guides or having the proper system where, where files can be pulled up. So there was a, a former archivist at the Kenyan National Archives named Richard uh, Ambani. He had he had been retired for many years but never stopped coming into the archives. He had the most institutional knowledge of anyone. He sadly passed away last year. But my project, my first project, and actually all the projects I've done, would not have been possible without collaborating with him because I would tell him something I was interested in and he would go off and find things in the archive. So even the archival work was collaborative. And then you have the oral interviews where these oral interviews are impossible without a high degree of trust, a high degree of collaboration, a high degree of sort of checking your own ego and your own assumptions about what you want the project to do. Because now you are co-creating a project because they're going to tell you what is important in their own histories? You don't get to sort of ask them the questions. It, I always say it's oral interviews are when the archives speak back to you, and and you know that can be unsettling, but it also is where the most exciting things happen. I interviewed. A woman over the summer who's 91, who was the only woman to reach the highest rank in the Kenya Land Freedom Army, in the Mau Mau. She ran, reached the rank of field marshal. She was never captured. She never surrendered. She's one of the last people to leave the forest after independence in 1963. Her life is remarkable. And in interviewing her, it be, it became quite clear that I was going to have to give over some of the control of the process to let her tell her narrative in the way that she wanted it to be depicted and in the things that she wanted to highlight, where I might ask questions that would take in one direction that she might redirect me on. And so that collaboration is so critical to to, to the ethos of all the work that I do. And I see the script writing in an iterative process as well. We plan to workshop it with Mau Mau veterans Mm, so that that they can tell us, does this ring true? Is this how you would have organized the camp? Is this what the camp would have looked like? And that's not very common either in the process. So it might take us a little bit longer, but we find it important because we want this film to have a global audience, but we also want to make sure it honors and respects the experience Of those who are still alive. Uh, We're starting to lose the last generation but uh, many are still alive who fought in the forest fight. We want to make sure it honors their experience of the forest and they don't all agree So we have to navigate that, you know, that's history is messy, and we have to navigate how we want to represent those different memories and those different experiences. But it's so important to to us to have that kind of iterative feedback process to make sure that we're really, this isn't a romanticized story of, of, of revolutionary fighters. It is gonna have the complexity and the messiness of this historical uh, moment. But we do also wanna give honor to the people who actually were the ones living through this reality.
0: That makes a lot of sense. In terms of researching the movie, so I guess we already talked a little bit about researching the movie and how mm-hmm. you sort of are looking at the archives in this sort of more visual way. In terms of writing, for a script like this how does this compare to the classic academic work of you know writing a a book or an article what are some of the differences in the ways like because you're you're obviously trying to tell the story accurately but you're also trying to tell a story right In, in a way that i mean a lot of historians are also trying to tell a story but trying to tell a story that will appeal to a much broader audience perhaps so like how is that experience different
1: that question of research creation and reaching wider publics and how to maintain the kind of rigor and integrity that we want in all academic work but actually reach those wider audiences is really guiding this project. This project is not just a film project. I'm actually writing an academic monograph alongside it about the social life of Forest Rebels. So in some ways, I'm testing the theory of how, <laughs> how am I writing it in this academic monograph versus how is that getting interpolated or, or translated into a script writing process. And I have sort of mentally separated out the two processes, but they do intersect and interweave. So what, what I've found interesting is that in looking at the archives, as you mentioned, there were certain aspects that I, that I would see that I never would have thought would have made it into the book and probably won't make it into the book but can inform certain visual aspects or certain narrative moments in the film that just would seem in an academic text to be a a digression Hmm. that wouldn't really fit into what we think of as the overall argument. But the film, because it's being told through a visual language, can express things in an indirect way. So, for example, one of the things that is sort of revealed through the discovery of Dedan Kamathi's trial that really was not popular knowledge before this was that he had epilepsy. And he talks about his experience of epilepsy and how highly stigmatized it is in Kenya. He talks about the kikuyu. In his testimony, he says the kikuyu call it having the devils. Hmm. And he talks about his experience of having these epileptic fits and, and does say he had epileptic fits in the forest. He's also quite known for having visions. There is a way in which we can, without sort of labeling it as epilepsy, use this idea of Kimathi's visions paired with the writings on the speeches and in his letters to create kind of surrealist moments in the film that allow us to visualize these ideas he was having for the future Hmm. so that it's coming from the archives and yet in the film we do not need to name them specifically but rather can imagine what for example he wrote in a letter might look like if he'd had that idea in a vision from an epileptic fit mm. and so we don't need to say those things directly as we would in a in an academic text but in the film we can visualize that different history in a way that might evoke Different kinds of ideas and 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 sort of different emotional resonances. So that really um, is exciting. For me, it's also exciting to make a film that that would have sort of a global audience because so many of the themes, as, as we've talked about, have global resonances. The themes of the legacies of settler colonialism, the questions around colonial violence and genocide, the questions around reconciliation and, and reparations. These are hotly debated topics and indeed Kenyan Mau Mau veterans were able to win a, a huge settlement from the British government in 2013 by being able to prove with the help of many historians, many of my colleagues, the, the extent of the torture that they experienced in detention camps they received a huge settlement and that has actually changed the legal landscape it's become a precedent setting case Hmm. and so the film for me also i hope would resonate um, with those global audiences who would see in it aspects of indigenous struggles in canada or in the u.s decolonial movements that are in the past but also in the contemporary moment throughout the world and so approaching it as a film in some ways there's higher stakes in the writing because you you, you have you are imagining a much larger audience sure in some ways it's a more fun writing process even though it's stressful because you're not constantly thinking about footnotes and you're not constantly thinking about making sure every aspect of it fits into the argument you're trying to make in the way that we do in academic work you're you're allowed a little bit more space for the imagination but for me why sort of myself and my filmmaker collaborators feel that this might work is that I'm bringing a different set of historical experiences and expertise to the imagining of these scenes so that hopefully they won't constrain the writing of of the script, but will rather elevate what we're able to say because we can actually correlate it with the archival record that we do have and where we don't have it. That's when the imaginative historical speculation can sort of flower.
0: Right, right. And I was also thinking about the theme of genre in terms of filmmaking, where, you know, not every film has to clearly adhere to a particular genre, but a lot of the time they they do fall into a particular genre, right? And and I guess this is true of academic writing as well, where we sort of have like, you know, your political history, your economic history, your social history, though I feel like those categories are a little less well-defined than they are for film. What are your thoughts on genre in relation to this? You you sort of mentioned that the story will be suspenseful, but also romantic. Do you find thinking about a genre in terms of trying to think about this history constraining? Or do you think that actually there might be a way that genre is like helpful for telling the history you want to tell?
1: When I think about that question, it always makes me nervous. So there obviously is an element where I feel constrained by it. Yeah. But when I start to get deeper into the writing, I realize how much I've been informed by different genre films. So I actually think the film might end up being a, a mishmash of different tones. And um, I was re-watching recently Jordan Peele's excellent Get Out with one of my nieces because she had never seen it. And she and I were talking about how, you know, there's suspense, there's humor. It is a hor- it's dubbed as a horror film, but it certainly does a lot more than a horror film. His more recent film, Nope similarly, is is a sci-fi film, but it's doing a lot of different things. And so I think there's a way in which you can take some of the narrative and visual cues that help an audience to understand and, and kind of go along on the journey with you from genre films, how you establish suspense through certain kinds of music through through. I also think there's an element of psychological thriller in the film as well, because I know I'm certainly highly influenced by psychological thrillers. Mm. So I think there's an element in which those, those genres can help to set the tone, but that we're not setting out a particular genre as a template that then we are filling in, okay, who's the villain? Who's the, you know, hero? uh, You know, what's the, in the, you know, the war film? What's the big battle scene? You know, those kinds of questions are not what are guiding us. But I think in terms of the tones and the kinds of atmosphere that the film is trying to set, a lot of those uh, genre elements will be highly influential in terms of how do we create the suspense in this scene? How do we allow the space for, the romantic storyline to, to coexist with that suspenseful or more psychological thriller aspect of the film? How does the drama even, right, the more dramatic elements kind of interweave in this film? And for me, I just keep going back to the forest, the space of the forest. And I also go back to, you know, there's a reason why Data and Kamathi has captured my imagination and other others' imagination so much. It's because there's so much that's mysterious about him many of his archives have disappeared there's little known about his life before mao mao even and what is known is quite debated and even his very body to this day is missing the location of his burial site was never revealed and has caused major public controversies ever since you can even look up stories dating from a couple months ago where someone will say claim they know where the body is and there's been a continual search for the body so that the family can rebury it and there are massive conspiracy theories around, well, the government does know where the body is, but they don't want it to become a site of reverence or a site of, mm. of, of resistance and of, of organizing for groups that might be dissenting against the government. And so in many ways, those gaps leave the room for myth-making. Mm -hmm. Right, And his reduction to, uh, as my colleague Simon Gikandi has argued, his reduction to a floating symbol means that he absorbs all the ideas, hopes, and dreams of others. And so that makes him not only a fascinating character, but this idea of the mystery. The forest, you know, invokes that idea of mystery. The figure of Camathe himself has a a lot of mystery to it. So even though it's not at all a a mystery film, it's not based on that structure, those kinds of elements also, I think, will come through just because of the the nature of the space and the kind of story we're trying to tell about this highly contentious history.
0: Very cool. This has been really great. I'm really excited to watch this movie when it eventually comes out me too which i <laughs> yeah, which I, I know is a, a ways off yet but it's it's interesting to hear about what sort of the the process is like at this stage when you're sort of in you know it's it's in the works right i've done a lot of podcasts about films once they're out not hmm. not usually with i've never done one with somebody who wrote the film but it's interesting to sort of hear your thoughts on it at this stage so this has been really interesting to talk to you about could you the listeners if you have an idea roughly of what they might expect hopefully to see this uh, vaguely and then in the meantime where can they look to learn more about this topic historically
1: Yeah. So academic and film timelines don't always match up. (laughs) So that's something we're working out right now. And as I've mentioned, I do see this as a full scale research project. So right now we're in a little bit of a holding pattern. We're still doing the writing. I've done some of the research for the project, but the major research will really start in the summer. And that's when I'll be able to work with my collaborators as well on finishing up the script. After that, it's a process of you know, it gets into a process which I'm not as familiar with. uh, You know, we have to work with our producers and and the filmmakers of selling the script, of getting the right team on board. And that can happen in a year or two. Sometimes things get fast-tracked and sometimes that can take 10 years. It really does depend on the momentum that the film gains. The people that I'm working with right now in Kenya and also some of the producers we've had conversations with are extremely excited and invested. So I hope it won't be a 10-year project. But I am aware that sometimes that happens. And as, as you know, with academics, we, we are very capable of dragging on a project <laughs> for 10 years. <laughs> in terms of what people can look for in the meantime, this is very shameless of me. And I never promote my own work, but... Please promote your uh, own work. <laughs> but what brought me to this project was the project I did on Deidan Kamathi. So the book is called and Kamathi on Trial. It has scholarly reflections in it, uh, including from myself and some of the top Mao Mao scholars in the world. But it also has the full archival documents, including photographs, including the x-ray of his bullet wound, including the full transcript of his trial. All of these files had been missing for 60 years. So that's part of why we wanted to show them all in this volume. So that's a great option if you want to dig into that history. And then there are great historians who've worked on this topic from Atieno Odihambo, Mickey Coster, Dave Anderson, John Lonsdale, Tabitha Canogo. There's so many, as I mentioned, Mau Mau scholarship is so rich that really depends on what aspect you're interested in. You know, if you're interested in British counterinsurgency, then you go to Hugh Bennett. If you're interested in the role of women, then you go to Cora Presley or Tabitha Canogo. If you're interested in the experience in detention camps and in the trials, then you might go to Dave Anderson or Carolyn Elkins. But another thing I would recommend is actually reading some of the amazing memoirs that Mau Mau veterans have written. So uh, one of the only memoirs written by a woman is a woman named at Otieno. And you get to learn how she acted as a spy, how she got intelligence information and delivered it to the Mao Mau, but also her experiences once she was captured and put into detention camps, which are quite difficult to read, but it's such a impressive and, and inspiring story. And there are countless memoirs written by other Mao Mao leaders. Unfortunately, Dedan Kamathi did not live to see independence, and so we do not know what he would have thought of the Mao Mau after or thought of the post-colonial reality. But many of the leading generals, General China, General Wachanga, they were able to live into the independence period and write these memoirs that give us highly conflicting, but always interesting accounts of what actually happened. And a lot of those memoirs are coming into the research that we're doing for the film as well.
0: Great. Yeah. People should definitely, definitely check those out. Those sound really fascinating. And I never identified the actual name of your project, which is Kamathia at war. That's at least the draft title right now. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that could change, I suppose, in the future. But but if you see Kamathi at War, check it out. If you're listening to this sometime later after this comes out. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been really great.
1: Thank you. It, it, it's, it's always interesting to talk to a fellow historian about film, but also about different ways of doing history. And that's what this project really is about for me, is exploring different ways of doing history and reaching different publics. So thank you so much for your thoughtful questions.
0: That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Julie for taking the time to speak with me. If you'd like to learn more about the history of the Mau Mau Rebellion, check the description for a couple of reading recommendations. I've also posted some photos related to the Mau Mau Rebellion on Facebook and Instagram, so check those out. We're at Off Campus History on both sites. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you recommend it to someone you know. Personal recommendations are really valuable for growing the audience. Or if you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast page, that also helps a lot. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, feel free to leave a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on future episodes. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off-Campus History.